Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers in a very special edition. The story behind Porsche's IndyCar win, captured in 1989 at the Kart IndyCar race held in mid-Ohio. The winning driver, Teo Fabi, the pint-sized Italian, driving for the single car, factory Porsche effort, led by Al Holbert's team, that being an offshoot of the Porsche Motorsports North America effort, supported from Germany, using a chassis produced in England in an all-American crew to run it. This big victory, 30 years now, felled all the biggest names, Mario Andretti, Michael Andretti, Rick Mears, Danny Sullivan, Emerson Fittipaldi, Al Unser Jr., all the big legends of the Kart IndyCar golden era, chased home Fabi's Quaker State-sponsored Porsche, March 89P, and this is the story behind it, beginning with how the program came together from Derek Walker's time, when he took over the Porsche IndyCar program following the death of its patriarch, Al Holbert. Coming out of a very unsuccessful 1988, there was a lot to improve in 1989. Start to look at the car itself, the merits of the engine, and then this crazy 1989 race where Fabi started on pole and won, but the path to victory was anything but normal. We close with Tino Belli, the designer of the March 89P, looking at a very unique year for the legendary British constructor, having been a massive part of the 1980s in cart. It's 1988 chassis, which was used by many teams and did not get many to victory lane, led to the company falling on very hard times, with only Porsche returning for business in 1989. Belly, in charge of designing that car, brings us inside something that was not only beautiful to look at, but also very effective as the one march in a field of Lola's and Penske's using Goodyear tires to great effect. Looking at some very inspired design choices as well beneath the skin, also aerodynamically open with discussions on the gearbox and how a big change there helped the car. Towards the end, he closes with a wonderful story on the incoming technology of carbon fiber in the late 1980s and how that, with March being on the forefront, was able to do something magnificent with a very slim rear wing profile that created massive downforce, and I will let him tell the rest of the hilarious tale. Altogether, this proved to be Porsche's one and only win in IndyCar, also proved to be March's final victory in IndyCar. So off we go, celebrating this 30th anniversary of Porsche, its finest day in the sun. We, Teo Fabi, one of the grumpier folks to emerge in the winner's circle. Hopefully you enjoy this little special we've put together for you, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Mr. Walker, we are at this pretty cool point of 30 years since Porsche delivered a victory in the Kart IndyCar Series at Mid-Ohio. Thought it'd be great to learn about how you came into the Porsche program before we get to the cars, that 89 win and whatnot. How did you get to the Porsche IndyCar program? Al Halbert approached me and he was looking to do um, strengthen the team, adding more people, and they were having March build a special car for them and at that time I was with Roger and I really wanted a piece of a race team I wanted to be part owner because I have been mechanic chief mechanic 
quasi-engineer, whatever, and a general manager. I've sort of done several jobs in racing, but uh, team owner was the next one. So I, um, I was intrigued by that and wanted to do that. And so uh, I waited uh, till the Nazareth race and there was running Sullivan's car and he won the championship. Uh, and I, um, I decided that was the time to, to move on. So I said, Al, I will, I'll do that. I'm going to talk to Roger. I'll tell him, and then I'll, uh, I'll do it. And so I left that weekend, or that, the end of that week before Mid-Ohio. He was killed. Uh, totally shocked. Um, I didn't know what was happened. You know, one of the first persons to call me person to call me was Roger and it was mm. like a Sunday morning or something and uh, Al had been killed the day before I think it was and he called me and saying how sad he was to hear about because he had a lot of respect for Al liked him a lot and um, so there was like a an uneasy kind of conversation which I'm not sure if it was you know if you're sure you want to leave go right ahead but if you don't need to you know and I thought, well, I, I shouldn't go back because once you pull that trigger, I'm not sure you get the same respect. And so I, I didn't want to be, you know. So anyway, I waited to see what Porsche was going to do. And Porsche came over, did got through the funeral with uh, for Al, and then they wanted to talk to me because they had heard that Al was working on me. So I met with the Porsche people, and they... they uh, I told them, well, I've actually got a contract, uh, an offer from Al and agreed to, and uh, they didn't believe me because <laughs> they didn't know that. Al was waiting for the right opportunity to tell them here's what his plans were. And so there was about a month where Porsche um, wanted me to come and run the team, but um, they weren't believing what, my conditions were for coming and it wasn't part of the team it was just the salary was the bit they just didn't want to uh, believe but it was going right it wasn't like I was asking for too much I mean Al didn't have tons of money to throw around so it wasn't like the biggest salary I'm sure I could have got more if I stayed at Penske but it wasn't about money so eventually uh, his Al's secretary cleaning out his safe found the contract and the letters back and forth mm. between Al and me. So Porsche accepted it, and we started running the team. So I took over then. And they were already in full flight with the uh, Porsche uh, 89 car. The March 89 P. Yeah. And, uh, so, and there was the other plans for the 90 car were being negotiated. So I was there through that negotiation period. But we got the, nine, the 89 car and we started racing with it and that's that's how it's sort of long story short but that's how we got there and uh so the 88 car uh which you had competed against mm. it wasn't much competition not necessarily because of the engine the the 88 march chassis was a bit of a dog yeah after that you had the lola which was definitely very strong that year penske's chassis as well what were your thoughts during that off-season of, here's a program, big international manufacturer, but not one, obviously, that's deeply entrenched at the Indianapolis 500, mm-hmm. et cetera. What were your thoughts on how to try and shape this Porsche 
factory effort into something that could be successful on a reasonable timeline, mm-hmm. knowing you're coming from Penske where that timeline is today, every day, where you can win. Right. What were you thinking timeline of getting this Porsche thing to some state of competitiveness? Um, well, it, it's a big picture at that point. It's not about like next weekend, we're gonna have this turned around. Um, and we were, uh, you know, Al's team was a very small team. Um, and it was uh, it wasn't a lot of resources there to uh, just turn the lights on and make it work. It was it was more focused um, getting a better march that would accommodate for Porsche's engine. Porsche's engine was I think if I remember was a V6 Formula One car with another couple of cylinders put on it. It was quite a, a long engine compared with what yes. we used at that time. But it was strong. It was like a, you know, just what you need, a really strong, powerful engine. And uh, they had better electronics. So the management of fuel and, and turbocharging, they were, that engine was uh, a bit advanced, I would say, than what we were racing against. But we had to get a car. And so March put this car together, which was a fairly straightforward, the Indian car, very normal, nothing spectacular, like a Lola kind of car which worked but it it didn't have everything it needed but it it, it was good enough to race so we needed to get that and focus on getting that right getting the team working and and see where we could go and we had Teo and you know he was he he put in his effort as much as anybody Uh, but we were dealing with German engine technical side we're doing a March British designers, and we're dealing with an American team in America, all three in different locations. So it was going to take a long time to come together. But it, it started to come together as the 89 car went along. Unique aspect to this 89 season was in 88, although the March proved to be a dog, there were a number of them in the field. Mm. There was still among the two primary customer cars to buy Lola and March. That was a familiar route for team owners. After that poor 88 showing in particular, March's order book dried up for the most part, and what it was left with was a couple of custom programs for Porsche. Share some thoughts on what that was like. You had effectively Mm. a constructor all to yourself, but you had them to yourselves because they were coming off of a lack of strength. Yeah. Yeah, the decision to go with March, uh, I think, was made during Al's time, obviously, leading up to it. So the decision to stay with March was already made. Not that, as you point out, there wasn't there wasn't too many places you could go that you could get your own unique package. And so that attracted Porsche to go there. Um, and March was saying all the right things. They were saying, look, you know, we can do it, We can, you know. Okay, we've got a bit of a problem, but we can fix that. So it was a good bit of salesmanship uh, on the part of March to convince Porsche and Al that they would put the effort in and it would be good. So, you know, but we're going to do stage one, which is a fairly standard car, and then we'll build the ultimate. Because as time went on, they were focusing on the fact that the rules opened the door for a carbon chassis. Yep. Nobody else saw that at that point, uh, but March did. And so 
It was a step with a standard car, sort of, but put a Porsche in and make an installation right. But the real caveat, the big picture, 90 will have the ultimate car. That was the sort of um, logic at that point. And, and quite frankly, we as a team that were growing fast and getting organized, we'd gone from a small team to quite a big team um, in numbers of people and things we were doing, um, we needed that interim year to help build us towards the ultimate 90 car. So we were getting, we were making good use of that time as, as a team pulling people together, getting on it, and uh, and getting um, you know, engineering stronger. Um, so it was it was a good stepping stone, and the car was was actually quite quite good for what it was. Still had the penalty of weight because of the engine, um, but uh, the engine performance I think helped outweigh the disadvantage of weight an attractive car as well i always loved mm. the look of that car the colors as well uh the yes. green and white i just thought were just as a vision yeah it was a beautiful thing to look at another aspect eric which as we start to move towards mid-ohio in that conversation there's a really interesting aspect of the 1989 season I'll mention a couple of names. Alan Sir Jr., Mario Andretti, Danny Sullivan, Scott Pruitt, Bobby Ray Hall, Ari Leyendijk, Derek Daly, Poncho Carter. What do they all have in common? They finished behind Teo Fabi <laughs> yeah. in the championship. There are three people that finished ahead of Teo yeah. in the entire 89 season. Yeah. Michael Andretti was right in front of him. Rick Mears was second. Emerson Fittipaldi yeah. won the championship. But point being, Teo Fabi, yeah. this single car team yeah. being resuscitated maintained to the best of its ability after uh the team founder real, yeah. again the person driving every aspect of Everything, it died yeah. the fact that you along with march uh along with goodyear as well yeah. were able to come up with a package teo driving his little tiny behind off yeah. able to finish fourth in the championship in 89 yeah there should almost have been a second championship awarded for that <laughs> fact alone. I yeah. know that you have to take pride in that. Yeah, very much so. It was a, a great feeling of uh, we're starting to get it together. We're starting to build this team. And, of course, at that time, people didn't necessarily embrace Porsche. Correct, yeah. Which I thought, I've always thought was one of the biggest mistakes the team owners and CART made is they disfranchised Porsche in many respects. And I think there was the fear that Porsche of the 917 or the whatever Porsche over the years that dominated and their smarts would eventually come up with something that was going to blow them out of the water and they wouldn't have what they had. But, and so I didn't think they embraced them, um, but it sh they should have done because it was a real accomplishment to get a Porsche to come into IndyCar racing or kart racing. Um, but the the '89 season was uh, was a good one. You know, it was uh, we felt we were making progress for sure. And and Tail was a big part of that. He, you know, he got you give him a good car, he he could drive the socks off it and and do it in a way that wasn't reckless. Uh, he'd he'd bring it home, but he'd and he had great feedback. So Tony Sakeli was our engineer at that mm. time, and uh, Tony. And uh, and Teo, you know, were 
connected at the hip. So a lot of synergy there, which uh, has to happen when you... If I may divert from this conversation and say, there was another point in time where uh, things sort of turn around and you look back and say, well, that was a special time. You know, at the end of 89, we, we had that success for the team that came out of out of the ashes of, you know, uh, a, a different, uh, different, near, different intention where Al's had, it was Al's team and uh, the loss of him, they, they came back. In 1973, in 73, that's the year Donahue was killed, was it not? At Austria, in the morning warm-up, he was killed. A year later... I'm now working with the Penske team and we come back to the same track with a different car and a different driver and win that race. And, uh, you know, there's something strange about that, that, uh, it, it, you know, just when you think you're at the end with the death of Donahue and Penske team, probably Formula One, it comes back out of the ashes and wins the race. Who would have believed? And it dominated the race. And uh, it was, um, there's a special moment you, you get like that in racing, quite keep you going. Which falls in line with another instance of that, obviously here with this victory at Mid-Ohio, uh-huh. this team that could have just as easily have folded and gone away after Al's passing Looking at the Mid-Ohio race 30 years ago, I think for those who might just look at the results, Mm. would say, well, clearly, dominated the day, Mm. win was guaranteed. Wasn't necessarily the case. There there was definitely a little bit of of fuel (laughs) stuff at play, but, I mean, Teo qualified on pole. It was an 84-lap race, led 71 of those laps, again, just strictly by the numbers looks like mm. everyone else should have packed up and gone home early a little more involved than that though getting to victory lane yeah we uh we screwed up basically we came into pits gonna make a good stop and can't get stunned and woof it, off it goes and i'm standing on the thing i think god that was a great stop and then there's a commotion down near the pit tank and a and what's the matter? Uh, didn't get all the fuel in. Didn't get all the fuel Lord. in. Oh Christ! I, wouldn't I forget how much we didn't get in, but it wasn't enough. But then again, it was because when Taylor went out, you know, we said, "Okay, okay, we're still we're still racing. We can figure something out as we go along." So we we didn't let anybody see that were helmets were thrown on the ground or mm. spanners were flying. We we kept our composure because teams were watching. They, they couldn't believe we got in and out so fast. And we couldn't let them see that we were screwing up. So we just kept our composure, kept racing. And we didn't tell tale. Which... <laughs> he didn't like uh, after the race. <laughs> when I uh, had to break the news to him. Uh, but what our strategy was, because we quickly jumped into an, okay, plan B... Taylor was going so well, and because he could drive the socks off of that thing around mid-Ohio, he knew it well. And because the car was light on fuel, lighter on fuel, he was going quicker and quicker, and the gap, and we were saying, okay, 
we knew how long we had to be in a pit stop for the amount of fuel we needed to get there in a race, get that gap. So we let him go, let him go until we got the gap. And then we called him in when the time was right and did fuel, poof, went back out and still in the lead. And everybody just couldn't believe that, like some kind of magic strategy was that. And, of course, I took all the credit for it. But actually, <laughs> <laughs> but actually we just screwed up. Uh, but, you know, uh, say screwed up. We didn't get all the fuel in at the time. Uh, I don't think I was smart enough before the race to say we need to do a different strategy like that. Um, short fill. Um, but um, it worked on the day. And I could see other years where I look at a race, I think somebody could do that again. Um, you just never know. But it worked on the day. And, of course, when Teo got under the winner's circle and found out, by the way, <laughs> we, we, we didn't give you all the fuel, he he was annoyed. And he, from his annoyance was, you know, it was it was about he was proud of his performance and he wiped them clean. He sat on the pole and won the race and you beat him. And, oh, wait a minute, you're telling me I had an advantage? <laughs> I had a light car. <laughs> We thought, yeah, that's okay. That's what teams do. They make it happen. He was okay about it. But at the time, he was a little dejected by all. I'm sure if if you speak to him today, he, he'd probably remind me that uh, <laughs> he wasn't happy with that. <laughs> Outside of Teo's surprise at learning that, share with us the the feelings in Victory Lane, conversations with folks at... Uh, Porsche in the U.S. or Germany. Yeah. I mean, this was, if we go back a decade uh, or more, there was obviously an attempt by Porsche to compete at Indy mm. uh, with the flat six turbo, and that mm. went sideways and such. Porsche had intent for quite some time, dating back to the 70s, to be here and to succeed. What was the feeling like of achievement finally getting what turned out to be the one and only win, but at that yeah. point in time, I'm guessing there was a feeling of true achievement. Yeah. No, it, it was definitely uh, a breath of fresh air, big time. For another reason, um, Al, um, in the relationship he had with Porsche, um, he had recruited or been involved in um, motivating the key people within Porsche that Porsche needed to do IndyCar. This would be a good idea for Porsche. Uh, car sales were flat in America, and uh, the people um, in t- inside the company were motivated to do it because because of Al. He, he did the best job at selling the idea. So when Al was uh, killed, slowly but surely, these older guys were retiring from mm. within the company. And so there wasn't the same level of support within the company f- thinking that IndyCar was such, or cart car was such a good idea. And, and so we needed to show some progress. We needed that win uh, to motivate us to go forward. As it turned out, we went forward with the next car and it was 180 degrees the opposite way and the people that were not as convinced and still smarting over what IndyCar did to them, I call them IndyCar, CART had done to them with the rules, 
uh, that was all they needed. It's time to leave. Let's go. And so it was a foregone conclusion from probably about Indy onwards. We were living on borrowed time in in 90. We never stopped trying, but you could see it was a tough sell. Let's close on this, Derek. Looking back now, 30 years to this win, 29 years to the conclusion of the program. Obviously, you would go on to start uh, Walker Motorsport, I believe was the name then, before it became Walker yeah, Racing. Yeah, right. Running Willie T here, making history. Yeah. In 1991, would go on some crazy Paris-born Brazilian guy by the name of DeFerrin would... Uh, some guy like that, yeah. Would, uh, bring you to victory lane a number of times. A lot of great things Sarah Fisher would follow. I mean, there's so much history that yeah. you would make on your own, but this Porsche team was really the first opportunity for you, post-Roger Penske, mm. to create something in your image. What comes to mind just at this 30-year milestone of the win and also this program? Well, the, the program was... Um I mean, it was my opportunity. Uh, I wasn't the team owner of the Porsche program, um, but at the end of it, uh, Porsche said, sell all this stuff off, get rid of it, uh, send the cars back to Germany, one to the museum, engines back to Germany, and get rid of the rest of the stuff. And there was a lot of stuff, right? And I said, I'll buy it. Mm. I'll buy it. So we had trucks and all kinds of things. I didn't have a penny to my name, but I said, I'll buy it. I'll take some time to pay for it, but I'll buy it. And the the guy who was the main guy in America was Fred Schwab, who ran Porsche Motorsports. And I had a good rapport with him. So he said, he just, I would go there every six months and tell him, I think I've got this sponsor and I think this is going to happen. I'll be able to pay this money. He just laughed. They didn't care about that stuff, mm. but I did pay him in the end. Not the total amount that we asked that I said. I even valued the thing and, and said I'll pay it. In the end, they said, well, pay us what you can. So anyway, but the without that opportunity, I'm not sure I could. And, and you know, I happened to go to Phoenix Oval and bumped into this guy, Willie T. Ribs, who I kind of knew but not personally. And he was who I got some money from. Bill Gosby and I'm going to go to the Indy 500. Have you got a team? I said, well, I, I have, but it's I don't have any money because um, all the team had let go and there was about half a dozen of them. I said, well, if you can hang on and work for me, if I get a deal, then when I got some money, I'll pay you and I'll pay you back the salaries you lost by not having work or working for me for nothing basically, not being paid. And so Will came along with his, well, he came along with his 350000 and uh, we bought an old car from Dick Simon. And uh, we had a Buick in it. We didn't have a Buick to start with. We had a Cosworth. Old war Couldn't get thing. up to speed with it. Couldn't, uh, couldn't get out of our own way. And Willie was not comfortable on the ovals. Uh, but, you know, we got Buick and uh, came qualified the second weekend, bounced this into the race. Unfortunately, didn't change gear right on the start, broke a push rod out of the race as quick as we got in, but it was a start. And we were the first guys in racing to get a call from McDonald's who said, can we get your archers on there? <laughs> so it, it was, you know, ups and downs like it always is, but it, without Porsche, 
without Roger, I don't think I would have, I would have made it this far. Let's talk about 1989, Tino. I don't know where we should start. Maybe coming out of uh, the 1988 march, which was not as formidable as one would hope, but what went into this project with Porsche being a primary, I guess, client of March in terms of IndyCar chassis design for 1989? So, in essence, nothing carried over from the 88 to the 89, but... The design principles was an evolution rather than a revolution. So I was just thinking about this. Um, the 88 March had had a high point crown wheel and pinion, which gave a lot of problems because it used to get very, very hot. So with the 88, we tried to lift the, the back of the transmission up to get good exits to the tunnel. And we'd followed along from what Adrian Newey had wanted, which was a high point uh, crown wheel and pinion. And it was always consuming, it was always getting very, very hot. And therefore, we suspected it was consuming a lot of energy. So the 89 car had a step up gear mm. before the transmission. So right straight out of the engine i think it had a step up gear so it was still a it's still a rearward longitudinal transmission but all the shafts were higher up uh and therefore you got a nice uh, airflow out of the underwing and actually if i remember correctly it was the first x-track gears in the united states so how interesting thought, up until that point, everybody had really liked Emco. So um, I remember Derek Walker being very upset that we delivered the gearbox with um, X-Track gears. Uh, and that was mainly because Gordon Coppock had had experience with Mike Endine, who was ex-Newland of X-Track. And the gear spacing on the step-up gears was something that, Emco couldn't make in time. So I'm pretty sure that every gear in the gearbox was replaced by Porsche North America when it arrived, other than the step-up gears, because they couldn't make that gear center. And they the step-up gears were very, very reliable. And then slowly the extract gear started going back into the box. And everybody in the U.S. started to get confidence that extract gears were actually good and strong at that point. Um, one of the other big differences is I think it was the first car that had strakes in the underwing. So we had, uh, I'm pretty yeah. sure that was the 89. Yeah, I'm looking at, at some photos now taken by the awesome Dan R. Boyd. And there are indeed some big, beautiful strakes uh, that are viewable. Uh, it looks like there was a, at least for the photos from, uh, what I believe is mid Ohio here. Uh, I see a single strake in each tunnel, yep. but they are deaf in the center of each tunnel on both sides yep. of the car. But yeah, they are formidable things. Nonetheless, we had, uh, just a single strike and it was a different strike speedway to road course. And the road course one, when you looked at it, almost looked like it was badly aligned to the airflow. But that's what created the vortex, which created the downforce. 
And of course, on the road courses, we were less concerned about the drag induced. Whereas in the speedway, they were more aligned to to the onset airflow. So the vortex wasn't as strong, the downforce wasn't as strong, but the uh, the induced drag wasn't so strong either. And uh, a lot of that came from uh, flow visualization. So we had uh, we could see at the edges of the tunnel, which was common at the time, that the flow wouldn't stay attached to the roof of the tunnel. By the we used to squirt air beside the rear tire, so there was a very narrow gap, maybe about an inch and a half to an inch and a quarter. And the Coke bottle would squirt air through that gap. It would energize the flow. And it would, because of the geometry of the wheel and the sidewall was vertical at the time, the highest energy was at the bottom of the, the bottom corner of the tunnel. And it would suck all the airflow down into that corner. And we we've put the strakes in to try and keep the airflow more attached up the outside edge of the tunnels. Fascinating. That's fascinating. The, the tub itself as well. I always loved the looks of the car and I realize visual aesthetics don't necessarily mean anything in competitive terms, but the 88 March, there was, you could certainly tell it from a 88 Lola that's not in question, but they still were, among fairly similar visual outputs, the 89 March in particular, I don't know if I should call it a bit of a dolphin nose or what, but there was a, a distinct look to the car, in particular uh, the carbon fiber uh, tub. And I just always thought it was a, a beautiful, but just curious uh, how you arrived at that compared to, I don't know, maybe the more, rounded missile-like form that we saw with Penske's and Lola's and otherwise, because certainly made it very easy to tell this car from any other chassis. So I think that was really done for um, installation stiffness. So the push rods, if you look at the front, from the front, the push rods were at a quite a good angle. So the higher you can get the push rod where it intersects with the tub, the stiffer the front suspension is, so the less loss motion you get into the uh, front dampers. And it was done pretty much for that. I think, if I remember rightly, the dampers were in a conventional position for the time, so they were down beside the driver's legs. Um, but we were also very, very careful to take the friction out in that car. So the um, the damper tops, where which they could move, backwards and forwards as well as in and out relative to the motion of the damper. It was all gimbaled, so it had like a cross, two sets of bearings in the cross to allow the head of the damper to basically move in any direction without creating friction. So unlike, it replicated a heim joint with a needle roller bearings. It appeared that there was a lot of I know this is the dumb statement, but there was a lot of thought put into this. And again, I know that might sound, it's not meant to sound in any kind of dismissive way. It's just knowing that the average higher volume customer car, right? You can buy, you can buy one of dozens of Lola's. There's not as if there's any less effort put into say a Lola going to, you know, dozens of chassis being produced, but there's also a bit of a mass production mindset 
I don't know if, if this is accurate or not, but in looking at this 89 chassis, it definitely has a more bespoke look to it, knowing that you weren't having to make a car that was necessarily universal for uh, all kinds of customers and engine applications. No, is that absolutely correct? Uh, a gimbaled damper top like that was rather cost prohibitive for a customer car. So you would have put a, a ball joint in there with the frictions associated with it. Whereas this one, we could machine the pieces out. Of, you know, we could CNC stuff and uh, have more bearings, needle roller bearings, and obviously there's a design time that goes into all that as well, which has to. Uh, you know, we did have a larger design team. Uh, we, we did have quite a lot of input from Germany. I think we had at least four engineers uh, from Germany working with us. Um, and so, yes, it went, a lot of detail went into it and it could be designed the way you wanted to design it rather than the way you had to do it to sort of make, as you say, 40 or 50 cars because we only made probably four engine as well obviously for the the 1990 car i mean granted that's that's a whole separate podcast uh but the the 89 car at least still had its turbo in the conventional rearward position tell me a little bit about tino if you could the integration of this 2.65 liter single turbo v8 porsche motor and what you found both from a packaging standpoint uh, and also maybe power and functionality standpoint? So from an insulation point of view, it was a fairly large engine compared with the Ulmore and the time the Ulmore was sort of like breaking new ground. Where this one was very interesting was the Porsche engineers wanted us to take the oil lines from the oil tank, which was in the conventional place in the back of the chassis, and make it such that we actually didn't have any uh, aeroquip um, lines. When the engine went onto the back of the tub, all the oil lines spigoted into the oil tank with O-ring connections. So a bit like, a, as you would see, a Wiggins connection. Yeah, exactly. You have a big fat O-ring, and as you push the engine into place, the O-rings engaged, and you never had to make a, a, a connection with a hose. Uh, that was really new to us. Uh, clearly, Porsche had done that before on previous cars. Um, I remember being highly skeptical. I was expecting to have gushes of oil <laughs> everywhere coming out of the thing, but it worked flawlessly. Um, so there were lots of really nice... Uh, design integrations that had titanium axles, titanium hubs in the upright, uh, titanium wheel nuts, which were a bit problematical to start when uh, when we had titanium nuts on titanium hubs, uh, which was solved because it had, uh, we found some super German lubricant, which stopped it all galling up. The engine itself uh, definitely made uh, big improvements from a power point of view through the season. Uh, I can't remember exactly. We were, we weren't stellar at Indianapolis, but I seem to remember we were, you know, reasonably competitive. But then at Michigan, we put the car in the front row, and I think at Pocono as well. So, you know, I think that was mainly due to 
power improvements as the season went on. Again, going from 88 to where, well, from 88, it was a vast improvement from the late season introduction in 87, where it was a Porsche chassis and engine. 88 showed that there was definitely merit to the program, but there wasn't much in the way of celebration. In 89, really, the car, the, the chassis, and the motor together became something that had to be accounted for. And while it wasn't necessarily super competitive at every race, it definitely, definitely showed that, you know, there were times where there was great performance to be had. Plus also, you know, there was a real reason to know that Porsche was there. What do you recall, Tino, of this 30th anniversary of its win at Mid-Ohio? Maybe more from the uh, designer side or engineering or technical side that stands out. Yeah, I think from a personal point of view, you know, we had the ability to push things to uh, a high level. So we had new materials at the time. Carbon fiber was really exciting material to be involved with. And uh, I did all the stress analysis for the front and rear wings and the carbon fiber design work. And um, we started to make some very, very slender wings, which you know, coupled with me being an aerodynamicist and uh, going to the wind tunnel um, was really exciting because previous to that, everything had been really sort of aluminum wings and carbon fiber wings were still uh, evolving from aluminum. So you used to think, I can't make the section less than, let's say, one and a half inches. And we managed to get the section down to one inch, approximately which you know for um for an i-beam which is essentially what a rear wing main plane is that's uh you know it goes with a cube of the thickness uh that was some really exciting times and we did we made some remember we introduced it at uh milwaukee a very very slender um very high downforce rear wing which was, would have been the same wing that we ran at mid ohio and we we developed it in the wind tunnel uh, with Tony Sicaley, who was a race engineer at the time. Got great results. Designed the carbon fiber wing, but carbon fiber tooling takes a lot longer than making it out of aluminum. So we did. We ended up making one at, from Milwaukee out of aluminum with steel tubes inside. And I remember Terry going out and saying, doing a, an incredibly good lap time straight out and then it got slower and slower and he came in and said i don't know what happened but the car just got slower and slower and hey presto the rear wing was bent in aluminum at the time oh, so the carbon, the carbon fiber one which got introduced i believe one race later or maybe two races later with a huge improvement and that's that's the wing that uh, that managed to finish at mid ohio and it wasn't bent or broken so for a young engineer great learning curves you know and quite quite satisfying to actually manage to do the stress calculations and and get them right as well i mean that's got to give you a pretty good boost to the ego when you're making wing bending downforce tino i love it granted again material <laughs> material change and problem solved but still that's pretty darn impressive but it was, you know it was very new for the materials back then as well the carbon fiber was new and we used to like load the wings up to try and break them back at the shop and um because you know we, we'd see these things 
you know, we had an unfortunate incident, I think, at the beginning of 88, where the rear wing end plate, which broke on Lion Dyke's car at Phoenix and uh, basically trashed the car, brand new car out of the box. So it was all so new that we just, we didn't necessarily know what we were doing. We were experimenting and uh, a little bit like your, you know, you say that we have processes. Bill and I were just talking about this in the car, that everything now has to have 14 processes or 20 processes before you dare put it anywhere near a car. Back then it was, um, you know, a calculation on a piece of paper. And I think actually someone sent me just recently, there is a, um, I think it's called March Art or something like that. Someone found the scheme drawing that I did where all of the calculations are on there, I think for that wing. And, uh, you know, it's, there was, there was no computers. It was all done hand calculations, um, and all on a big scheme. Um, and then you had to sort of like make it and load test it and hope, hope, for, hope that you got the loads right. There was no CFD to really tell you what the loads were. You know, we, in the wind tunnel, we had the load for the whole car, but we couldn't isolate because the air interacts from one part to the other. You never really knew what the load was that you were designing to. And yeah. The walls and and barriers around the circuits were often the uh, data points uh, if for all designers. Well, if you had to learn, if you, you would be informed if loads were exceeded. And Bill and I often said, you know, what the first thing we would say to a driver would say, "Well, this is something new, so go out there and feel it out, please." <laughs> Whereas now the drivers expect to go out and just floor it. We would say, "Ah, work up to it a little bit here and." Leave a bit of space. Leave a little. Leave yourself a margin. Well, thank you as always, Tino, and thank you for creating this beautiful car. I mean, I loved loved it when it was new, and I just continue to love it. And really happy that we have yet another opportunity to talk about it and celebrate Porsche's victory in Mid Ohio back in 1989. And that was the story behind Porsche's IndyCar win. If you'd like to check out more episodes. We have 600 plus waiting for you on marshallpruittpodcast.com, separated into a variety of categories and ways to subscribe. All right. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is the Marshall Pruitt Podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Thank you for listening.